Life moves way too slowly for me. It always has. I knew what I wanted to do when I was in my teens. I wanted to write. I wanted to work with writers. There have been three constants in my life. Books, clothes, sex. And, and champagne. Four constants. And, and money. Five constants. My parents are wealthy, but too wrapped up in each other to pay any attention to me. Boarding schools and au pairs raised me. My parents are both still alive, but it wouldn't matter much to me if they weren't. We barely speak. I liked having money, but I wanted my own. I hated using theirs. But I didn't want to wait. Writing takes forever. Forging a successful literary career takes even longer. It took Jodie Picoult six novels to become financially independent. I'm not a patient person now, and at 19, I was even less so. Even before I went to university, I believed I knew the techniques that would help commercially-minded writers reach their potential. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi there, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Angus. I'm here today with John Purcell. John holds the enviable position of Director of Books at the Australian online bookshop Booktopia. As well as helping propel many a book to the top of the bestseller list, John is a best-selling author himself with the erotic fiction trilogy The Secret Lives of Emma, written under the pseudonym Natasha Walker. He now has a novel out under his own name. The Girl on the Page follows a hotshot, hard-drinking, bed-hopping book editor, Amy Winston, as she attempts to drag a has-been literary great back into relevance. John, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, so, is it right to say that Joseph Heller's Catch-22 instigated a life and career built on reading for you? It did. Uh, before then, it was all film and, and music and visual art. Before then, um, I thought that was... All there was, and books were deadly, deadly boring. Um, they tried their best at school to make sure that I never read a book uh, to its end, um, but a friend saved me. I was saved in the last moment of the HSC when I was uh, pretty much flunking it, um, and it gave me Catch-22, and off I went. What was it about that book that so grabbed you? There was just more, more of everything. Um, you can't compare. I mean, no other art form in my mind compares with the novel. The novel can go anywhere it wants to go. It can be the biggest uh, action thriller in the world. It can be tiny, tiny details. It can be um, exciting, funny, um, anything, anything you can possibly think of. Completely made up. It can be, you know, Tolkien. You know, there's just anything you can possibly come up with it. And I'd loved MASH. I'd loved film. And, but Joseph Heller's Cash 22 it was so funny, so dark, so extreme, uh, that it just slapped me, you know, and just said, "This is this is your future." Right, and you'd never really read anything that you had enjoyed before then. No, the closest thing was um, Catcher in the Rye, but I, 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 I think it read me rather than I read it. I didn't, I didn't really, um, and it was much later that I really enjoyed that book. Uh, I think it probably held up a mirror to me at the time that I read it, and I didn't like what I saw. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah, that's so surprising because Catch Twenty Two is such a bizarre, brilliant, challenging book, and to have that as the one that sort of kicked everything off at such a late age as well is yeah. really, well, my, really My father's a big reader, and mm. um, 
it made sense that he offered me things like um, Jaws and Tom Clancy and uh, John le Carre to try and get me into reading. Um, but I felt that everything they had to offer, I could find in a film. You know, so why bother? And so it sort of it drove home to me that, that books were just a really uh, not only difficult, but pointless. Um, and it wasn't until I, I flipped over into uh, great literature that I realised you could put so much more into them. So you lived the dream of any bookish young person and opened your own second-hand bookshop in your 20s. How did that come about? Uh, I, I took a job in a, a second-hand bookshop in, in um, Northern Beach, a suburb of DY. Um, I, just, I, I just walked in. I, it, it just popped up. It just opened. And I, I walked in, and it was extraordinarily lucky. The, the fellow that helped start the bookshop had walked off in a huff. And so uh, the, the owner needed somebody, and I was a, you know, a bookish person, and, and I, I, I said, how about me? And I came back the next day, and I was, uh, I was put to work. And so I worked for him for five years, and this thing called the internet um, came up at around the same time. I didn't like this internet thing. Um, all the prices in the bookshop went up, to um, sort of uh, catch up with uh, global pricing. And I just thought it was garbage. So I left um, and I set up my own bookshop and I didn't have any internet and my prices were low. Um, uh, and I sat there for nearly 10 years reading and writing and uh, talking with mad people. It was fantastic. And it was called John's Bookshop, is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I thought about that for years. Uh, <laughs> well, everyone said, well, I was coming up with all these really cool names and everyone said, they're going to call it John's Bookshop anyway. Absolutely. So, Stick it on the sign. Yeah. For sure. What did John's Bookshop look like? Well, I'd, I'd learned a lot from the, the fellow that I worked for um, and I knew that it needed to be clean and bright and well-ordered um, to, in this, in this world where the second hand was kind of losing uh, its appeal as Australia got richer and richer. Um, so I had, to, I had to make it look as flash as I could. And I was lucky in the fact that the shop that I moved into had been a dress shop and I was able to turn the, um, the gorgeous looking shelves into, um, or, or hanging racks into bookshelves, which had downlights on them and everything. So it was all, it was, I was very lucky in, the, in what, was, what they'd left um, in my shop that I could rearrange and, and turn into lovely, a lovely shop. So uh, I made it as beautiful as I could. And were there any memorable regular customers, these mad people you were talking to? Oh, so many. Um, I had this this gorgeous Vietnam vet who used to um, read um, uh, crime novels, uh, Kinky Freeman and Carl uh, Heisen, and would lean against the uh, the bookshop and, and uh, tell me stories. I had Peter Harvey Canberra, um, the fellow that from Channel 9 News who used to do the politics um, used to come in and, and give me wonderful stories about the, the past. I had uh, so many women who would um, uh, sit down on the, on the counter and, and just talk uh, about their reading history, uh, about their lives. I was like an unpaid counsellor for a while there. You know? <laughs> people would just come in and drop down and tell me their problems. Nice, like a barman. I love it. Um, what was your reading diet like as you ran this shop? It was all dead people. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that writers could could still write uh, and be alive. So the first thing that really got me was was the um, early twentieth century literature, um, the 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 Outsider and um, a lot of the French lit, um, and then I, I slowly slowly drifted into the nineteenth century and I got lost there for years. And so during my secondhand bookshop life, I would I'll be reading. You might find me reading uh, Fanny Burney's Cecilia um, or you um, or George Meredith's The Egoist, 
Um, I, I even tackled, which is probably the finest piece of literature ever, Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. Um, then I, I discovered this thing called Australian literature. <laughs> I, tried, I was gobsmacked. My God, these, these colonials can write. And, and I just went off and read as many of the great Australian writers, Christina Stead, I fell hard for. I, I just could not uh, stop myself. And I, and I was terrible too because I kept hoarding her. Every time one would come in, instead of selling, selling it, I would put it there for some, like some sort of nuclear bunker thing where I would just be putting my Christina Steads aside just in case the world did go the way it has, already has gone. I love that, the image of a nuclear bunker full of classic Australian literature. That's lovely. <laughs> um, so now you're the director of books at Booktopia. What does being a director of books entail? Booktopia's grown so fast. So when I joined 10 years ago, it was a, a small, small business you know, massive compared to my small business, but uh, a small business compared to what it is now. And it had about 20 people working there. Um, it had a, a couple of offices and a garage, which um, Tony Nash, the CEO, um, referred to as the warehouse, to the point where someone asked me to go to the warehouse and grab something. And I went out from the office in my first week, went out from the office into the garage, through a door onto the street, looking for the, the warehouse, not realising that he referred to this tiny little garage as a warehouse. <laughs> Um, so it was tiny, tiny business when, when I joined. And so it was a place where you could say, I'll do that. Oh, social media, you've heard of that? I'll do that. Uh, the blog, I, I can look after that. Oh, you want intros for the newsletters? I can write those. So it was, it, it was something that um, there wasn't a marketing team and then it slowly grew. Um, and there wasn't a content team, but that slowly grew. And so I started to, I was right in the middle of it. And so my role now uh, is to look after a team that... Um, what we call merchandisers, but are real just booksellers. I've got two very knowledgeable booksellers who look after, one looks after fiction, the other one looks after nonfiction. Uh, and uh, and I've got a, a buyer who's taken my place as the buyer. I've got a, a senior content producer who d- writes great content for us. Um, and I've got a coordinator that keeps everything organised. So that's that's our team's called the book team. Fantastic. That's the team you want to be in. Yeah. Um, and how big would Booktopia's garage be these days? It's enormous. It's absolutely <laughs> enormous. Um, I don't, I, I, it was 11,000 square metres at one point, but I think it's grown again. We uh, just recently, we have three of the four warehouses in a row in, in this massive complex. And we now have taken um, the fourth one. So it, it just keeps growing. And we're just putting in... Um, a, a mezzanine into the middle of it, so that doubles our, our stock space. Uh, we have uh, enormous packing machines. We have conveyor belts going all around the the warehouse. It's it's enormous. There are 190 people working for Booktopia now. Wow! Yeah. Wow! From nuclear bunker to four warehouses. Yeah. It's <laughs> great. So, what led you to write and publish the Secret Lives of Emma trilogy? Um, that was that was all weird. It started off as as a kind of a game. Uh, a, f- a girlfriend of mine was working in this terrible job, um, but it was great for someone doing uni. It was it was the human side of that um, that computer that tries to understand what you're saying when you ring up Commonwealth Bank or Telstra, you know, and, you know, um, and whenever whenever the computer got something wrong, they would have to jump in and answer the customer's query or press a button. Yeah. Um, and so, but as the computer learnt. There was less job to do, so there was just pressing buttons by the end of it. And so these girls would sit there and and study. They would just there was a whole lot of university friends that sort of studied. And a, a boyfriend of one of them sent in an erotic story, 
and they were all tittering and laughing and, and talking about how good it was. And I got jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote one and sent it in because I was in my bookshop and I, I just emailed it in and they ripped it to pieces. They thought it was absolute and utter rubbish. They thought that I had no idea what was going on in a woman's mind. You know, and my girlfriend was, was appalled. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I was very determined. You know, so I, I started to write um, little, little um, erotic stories to try and impress them. Um, but what I, what I discovered in that process was that you can't, you can't satisfy a full room of women like a, a, and try to, because they all gave feedback and, and trying to write an erotic story, which, which fit every person's fantasy was insane. Mm. Um, so I, I imagined Emma and I just went, well, Emma likes this. I'm going to go with that. So I wrote this big, um, pile of pages that really didn't have much of a, uh, a story, um, to it and I put it in a drawer and then years later um, when I was trying to get another book published um, the agent who was having difficulty getting a publisher interested in it said have you got anything else and I said well yeah I have this naughty pile of pages you probably don't want to have a look at that and she went I'll have a look she had a look and she went this is never going to get published John this is disgusting go put this away you should be put in jail this is what are you doing <laughs> the same day um, or around the same day uh, I got an email from her saying have you seen the Herald and I went Oh, you mean that Fifty Shades of Grey thing? Yeah, we've got lots of orders for that at Booktopia. And she went, you don't understand what that means, John? I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so she ran off with the pile of pages to Random House, and they signed it up almost immediately. And it went to print so quickly. So the editor there, Beverly, um, and I worked like crazy people. While Booktopia was at its, like, was bursting at the seams, and I was doing so much work there, I had this other thing happen. And we edited this thing like crazy. We got it into print really quickly. So I think the um, the beginning of the Fifty Shades was in 2012 March. The book went to, into into publication and went into the shops on, in July. I do remember meeting you for the first time. I think we're at a book event and you were sitting at the Booktopia stall, obviously behind a big desk of books. And I walked up and there was one on like a stand. And I picked it up and it was one of the secret lives of Emma books. And it said, uh, Natasha Walker. And I was flipping through it and you said, oh, I wrote that. And I looked at you and I thought, you don't look like a Natasha. <laughs> <laughs> so why the pseudonym? Uh, they, they suggested it. I was, I was very nervous because when I was signing the contract, when I was, when we were, and it was all happening so fast, um, erotica, you know, we sold erotica on Booktopia largely because you could buy it without being seen. And it was that kind of thing. You you were ashamed to be reading um, erotica. You weren't weren't going to read it out in public. Um, so at the time that this was happening, and, and it was the beginning of the Fifty Shades craziness, um, it really I was kind of nervous about it. I didn't really want to put my I, I, my career at Booktopia was sort of taking off. And I spoke to the boss there, and when I've you know what do you reckon? And he's like, well, I don't care. I'm like, oh, good. Um, and I said, well, what if I went under a woman's name like like uh, Random House is suggesting? And he went, well, that would be easier. <laughs> and mm. I went, good. And I, I was thinking about the kids as well and my wife and my family. So I thought, yeah, if they, if they want it, they think it's better. I'm going to go with the, uh, w- w- with the woman's name. And it did, I reckon it did help, absolutely. Yeah. How do you choose a pseudonym for yourself? I, I wanted something extraordinarily boring. So the, ti- <laughs> the, the title would be the thing. Oh, yeah. So I, I, Natasha Walker was, for me, as, as pale as I could make it. 
um, so that it didn't stand out and that the, the title was the thing that someone rem- remembered. But, you know, having worked in a bookshop, no one remembers authors' names. It's horrible. They, they always go, I don't remember the author, but the title, the cover was like this or the title was something like this. Authors have always forgotten. So what prompted the unmasking of yourself as the author of these books? Well, the books had come out and it was all done. And having been in bookselling for years, uh, I knew that it was done, you know, that, that the, the curve had done its bit. And I thought, well, I've got one thing left to, to get another little spike um, and coming out. And I was so proud of it and I couldn't tell anyone. It was driving me nuts because it was a big success and, there, and then no one knew and I was really annoyed. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah, so... Um, uh, we 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 knew Caroline Arrington um, for coming into Booktopia and signing, and we gave her the story, and she she's still laughing at it. Like every time I see her, she's got a smile, and she looks at me and just goes, I "Can't believe that, Trump." Like this six <laughs> years later. <laughs> I love that. The biggest unmasking since Elena Ferrante, <laughs> Australia's version at least. Um, so now we have The Girl on the Page, um, the first book you've written under your own name, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us about the book and about your character, the young and let's say vivacious book editor, Amy Winston? Well, Amy came to me years ago, absolutely years ago, um, when I was listening to um, Amy Winehouse. I just loved the way Amy Winehouse um, talked about heartbreak and doing the wrong thing and losing love and and also the story of her spiral downwards someone that successful that in control um that talented being succumbing to um, factors that overtook her life um and i I was i I was fascinated by that And, and i had this character in my mind um and i just couldn't find a book for it and i i remember talking to an agent years ago about this and she's going that's a really good character and I went yeah but have you got a story mm. <laughs> I need to I need her to put her somewhere so Amy was around long before anyone, anything else um, and whenever I listened to Amy Winehouse out she'd pop again and go damn you I've got to do something with you um, it wasn't until Malcolm and Helen popped into my head and Malcolm and Helen are two literary greats um, in their um, late 70s uh, and they've had they've had all the things you'd want um, out of a literary career They've had esteem. They've been, you know, in newspapers. They've done. They've, they've, they've kind of called icons. Uh, the one thing they've never had is any money. Mm. Um, they haven't had the sales. They've never gone you know, global with anything. They've 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 been in in neat little um, modern classics collections, but never seen the numbers. Um, and I like the idea of uh, an author like that going out and writing a blockbuster. Um, and this is what Helen does. Helen writes a bona fide blockbuster um, and her agent rushes off and gets this enormous deal, like enormous deal, a life-changing deal. And they're in the late 70s. So I wanted to see what, that, what would happen to a marriage that is built on integrity and trust and artistic um, uh, ideals that they're shared, um, that, that um, what would happen if ton of money and opportunity was placed in front of them did it did it mean what it used to mean um and so i instantly thought of amy amy coming in to get the book because helen uh seeing that malcolm isn't happy with her um has second thoughts and doesn't hand in this big blockbuster to the publisher and because publishing is a is a um uh, a dangerous game her publisher has been eaten by another publisher who was eaten by another publisher. And so in all the chaos, no one's really come for the book. 
um, until they send Amy in. And so I send this Amy, and Amy is um, highly successful. Um, she's helped a, a mediocre thriller writer become um, the, the next Lee Child, and they're selling uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of copies around the world. And she doesn't need to work. She's made a ton, but she loves editing. She loves writing. She loves being in publishing. So she continues to do the job. But she's got this reputation of a bit of a fixer. You can, you can fix this, Amy. You can go down there and, and get this. So her soulless publishing director um, sends her to, to get this book from Helen, saying, I, I, don't want, I don't want a literary book. I don't want a Booker Prize winner. I, I want a Jojo Moyes. I want a bestseller. Don't let her give you anything less. And so you've got this woman who's never failed um, in her work She's failed a lot in life. Mm. <laughs> She's never failed in her work, set against these literary giants, absolute and intellectual giants. Um, when I say that Amy hasn't um, hasn't failed in uh, in work, but has failed in life, I mean she stuffed it. She had a beautiful relationship with this fellow called Max, and she completely stuffed it. Um, and she has not got over. This and she has been torturing herself about this for for years since it since it happened. Um, she lost her innocence in that time, and so in her private life, she has been sleeping around. She's been drinking. She's been um, failing to commit to anything. Um, she barely even has a home. She um, she moves from couch to couch, bed to bed. Um, so this extraordinarily um, wealthy woman um, and career oriented successful woman. When she goes home, she doesn't even go home. Like it, mm. I, I loved it, and and, and that's what that's where the the Amy Winehouse thing came, comes in. This slow deterioration of of someone who is just so talented. As you say, this character has a a, a talent for taking a lackluster manuscript and turning it into a book that'll sell a million copies, and then she's assigned to this literary giant. So obviously, you've got this interplay between commercial fiction, I guess, and literary fiction, and that sort of discrepancy, because it seems like people who read literature turn up their noses at commercial fiction, and then perhaps people who are fans of commercial genre fiction are a little bit put off by, you know, I guess, literature, in inverted commas. What do you make of that whole sort of debate, I guess, between the highbrow and the lowbrow? Well, if you'd caught me sitting in my secondhand bookshop, in my black books moment, I would I would have just been absolutely... It was black and white to me. You, you were either a reader of literature or you, 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 would, you were just a turner of pages. There was no reading involved. There was no... Um, but having since worked in Booktopia and having met um, so many of the best, most successful writers and best writers in Australia over the last 10 years and heard their stories and, and seen just how devoted they are to their work and what it means to them in all genres, in, 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 in all nonfiction, fiction, um, kids' books... Um, I, I can't, I don't doubt the sincerity of any of these writers. Um, I've not met one that, that looks like they're just playing the game. You know, uh, even the, even the most successful really believe in their work. Uh, and I think that's one of the key successes, uh, to, to them. Uh, the secrets to their success is they actually believe in it. If you went out and tried to write a Matthew Riley, uh, because you wanted to make a million bucks. No, no chance. Mm. Absolutely no chance. Matt loves that that kind of writing. He loves those kind of movies. Um, he's obsessed with it. He writes it because he really enjoys it, and it shows, and people fall for that. And so my opinion, my black books guy, uh, was kind of shot down by reality, by experience of this. So 
um, the genre literature um, debate uh, I take up at the right at the end of the book, and it's kind of just this sort of musings of of Malcolm, uh, um, one of the main characters, um, and he he kind of looks at quality. Um, it doesn't really. It comes down to the quality of the writing. Um, it doesn't matter if you're if you're considered a genre writing. If the quality is right, then your literature. Like it's so the the genre um, literary thing falls away when you think of literature only as a as a word describing quality. Um, so as you mentioned, as as well as a bookseller and writer, you're also a prolific interviewer of authors. I was just wondering. Does that make you terrified to put pen to page or fingertip to keyboard, like when you've just picked the brain of someone like Neil Gaiman for an hour and then you have to go and write your own stuff? It does, it does. But it also liberates because each one tells their own story and each one tells their own way of writing. So no one ever agrees. Through Booktopia, I've interviewed either via email, uh, at least a thousand writers via email, but um, in podcasts, it's, it's hundreds now. And... Um, when I ask them about their writing, generally it's so different. Like Solari Gentle writes in front of the TV, absolutely brilliant books. And when 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 people listen to that podcast, they have a heart attack because most of us struggle. <laughs> and she and she's knocking these books out, wonderful books, um, out with with seeming ease. Um, you know, when when I when I talk to um, Hannah Kent, say sitting across in a podcast, and she is so articulate and she writes, she speaks in perfect paragraphs. Um, and she writes so beautifully, or, or Stephanie Bishop, another another one, uh, who, who just gobsmacking in their brilliance. Um, they're the ones that kind of make me uh, shudder and think, what, why am I bothering? Um, but they also inspire me because um, they're they're aiming so high, and it just that to me is so inspiring because I didn't believe it was happening. I didn't believe when I was in my little bookshop being a grump. Um, I didn't believe anyone right now was attempting these kinds of things. Um, and yet I've met hundreds of people attempting these kind of things. And it is it's gorgeous and inspiring. And it, I, I want to do it after I talk to these people. But then I talk to, like, my Amy side comes out when I talk to Fiona McIntosh. And she is so precise in how she puts together her books. And each year there's another one that comes out. And each year they're, they're loved by their audience. And you would think by the mechanical way in which she produces them, that they would feel mechanical. No, she just has her structure, really structured existence to, to write, to make sure she writes. But she falls in love with the research she does. She falls in love with the characters and that comes through. So sometimes you can have a cursory glance at something and go, oh my God, you stop when you hit 2,000 words every day. Even if you're in the best sentence in the world, you'll stop halfway and then start again tomorrow. Madness. But when you actually read her, you can't see any of that. You just feel the warmth coming through. So, um, yeah, it's it's easy to judge, but the more experience I have, I, I just keep pulling back and saying, I'm, I'm not judging. Have you ever been terrified to interview someone? Yeah, every time I interview an interviewer. So, <laughs> you know, uh, Lee Sales, oh, I, I was shaking in my boots. <laughs> Kerry O'Brien. Um, I had to interview um, John Howard, and John Howard um, was while the signing was going on was um, like someone's grandpa, and I was like, oh, "This is going to be good. This is fine." As soon as we sat down with a mic between us, his eyes sharpened on me, and I and I just went, "Oh, I'm damn, I'm doomed." He he was so good, <laughs> he was so sharp, <laughs> and I just felt like a complete and utter idiot. Um, AC Grayling, uh, who I absolutely love. Um, and it is so bright and so clear and he's thinking about big, big problems, big philosophical problems. Um, I, sh- I was shaking my boots, but he is, he's a gorgeous man. He just reached out and made me feel comfortable. Mm. My first interview, um, 
ever in front of a camera, and my first real interview face-to-face was with Kate Forsyth um, at Random House. They, um, they organized it. And I was, I could hardly speak. I had, I was so dry in the mouth. Um, but Kate is, is such a lovely person. She, she pretty much interviewed me and herself in the process and led me through <laughs> like, like putting a bridle around a horse <laughs> and led me through. So, yeah, that was probably the, um, the, the most terrifying moment was the first. Um, but having Kate as my first was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And usually this is a trite question, but I feel like it's warranted given that you've uh, spoken to literally over a thousand authors. What's the best writing advice you've ever heard? Uh, well, Peter Carey wrote on, on his thing, don't listen to any advice. <laughs> <laughs> that was his advice to everyone. Um, reading. A lot of authors will say the same thing about reading. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll get emails from budding writers and I'll, my first question back to them, what are you reading? If they answer, I'm not, I'll, I'll almost write back going, why are you bothering then? Um, without reading, there, there is no hope. So after spending decades in the industry and writing a book that is in some ways a satire of the publishing world, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the book world and where do you think the industry is headed? Uh, well, the biggest change um, was, was e-books for a while there, um, but e-books have gone away in a, in a, in a way. Um, I, think, I think the smartphone has kind of um, cut off that digital um, domination. I mean, there are the audiobooks are now coming in, but I think audiobooks are bringing back people to books. Um, it's a gateway drug to reading. Um, but the ebook suffered with the smartphone because um, you wouldn't really want to carry an e-reader and a smartphone with you everywhere you go. So the e-reader was left at home. Mm. Um, and everyone went, oh, well, I'll just read on my phone. But if you ever tried reading on your phone any book, you'll have um, Facebook notifications coming in, e- emails coming in, uh, what's happening on Twitter, I'll just check. Um, and it's very difficult to remain uh, on the page. And I think that's what sort of led um, people back to, to books uh, as a place where there are no notifications. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. But it's also the Harry Potter generation um, seem to be loving the actual physical book. Um, so covers are important and bindings are important. We're finding that uh, the younger generation, say between uh, 18 and 30, are very interested in getting a, a beautiful edition of their favourite book um, and having a wall full of these gorgeous hardcovers of their favourite book. And so they might have three editions of their book. They might have an e- e-book that they might listen to on audio um, and they'll have a quick paperback that they picked up and then that's the one that made them fall in love. And then to finish it off, to have it on the shelf and have it on Instagram is you have this gorgeous hardcover. And, uh, and I love that. I love the fact people are putting books on display again. I, I had this great fear of going to people's houses and sitting there and people say, do you want to have a look at my, my library? And, and handing hand their phone to you. <laughs> and you're meant to flick through and have a look at their library. How are you meant to do that in secret when they go to the bathroom? You're meant to be able to go check their library out, you know, and, and see what kind of person they are. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so glad that the digital world lost in this, in this instance. So, as a last question, but a very important one, what have you been reading lately that has impressed you? Normal People by Sally Rooney. Um, it's, it's funny pr- you said that. I actually saw someone walking along buried in that book today just as they came to the studio. It is one of the best things I've read for years. And um, she is one of the... She's a true gem. Like, the things that she's seeing, the things that she's noting, the descriptions, the tiny details, um, it is eternal but it is so now it 
it harks back to in my mind. It harks back to writers of the early twentieth century and their concerns. But it is so solidly placed in the now. Um, and for for young people reading, it's so good to have this caliber of, of writer there for them, just as they're getting into um, you know, maybe their their first first foray into literature. And she is literary to the nth degree, but so accessible. Uh, I I wish her all the success, success. I would just give her the book now. How often does a book come along like that where you're like, this is really super special? This is years, um, absolutely years, because. Um, there are so many good bits in books where I go, holy moly, that was amazing. Sally Rooney is, this normal people is good from beginning to end and it doesn't let you down at all the whole way through. And, and that is, that is this pure talent right, riding through there and intelligence. Um, and then this, this incredible artistic skill, mind boggling. Yeah. It's one of those once in a lifetime kind of um, things. Fantastic. Oh my God. Well, I will be definitely checking that out now after I finish The Girl on the Page, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for coming by and chatting to us, John. Thank you. It was wonderful. The Girl on the Page by John Purcell is out now from Fourth Estate in all good bookshops, including Good Readings, online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. And if you'd like to hear John's interviews, search the Booktopia Books podcast on whatever app you use.